thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists on BBC Radio Cambridgeshire with me, Hannah Critchlow, and with Kat Arney. Hello, and this week we're investigating brainy babies. Should you raise your baby to be bilingual? And are video games rotting or rejuvenating children's minds? Big questions. Plus, in the news, is nuclear fusion the answer to our energy crisis? Genes that could help us to cope in the cold? And the effects of crude oil spills on tuna? Plus, what's going on in the brain when you have a go at saying this? Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. We'll be finding out. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, before we start the news, each week we pose you a scientific teaser. This time, how quickly do brain cells form in babies during human pregnancy? So, is a brand new brain cell born in a baby every second, one a minute, or one every hour? To get in touch with us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. First this week, though, Kate Lamble and Chris Smith have been stateside. They've been visiting the Windy City of Chicago for the big annual American Association for the Advancement of Science conference. So, Kate, what's been inflating you with excitement this week in the news? Hi, Hannah. Hello. So this week in very snowy Chicago, the session that I really enjoyed was one with Katie Hind of Harvard University. Now, she was speaking about breast milk. Now, in the UK, we've got the message that breast milk is really important for the growth and health of babies. But actually, Katie was saying that there's a huge variation in the composition of breast milk. Practically every single component of breast milk, that's fat, protein, minerals and hormones, varies both within a single mother's milk over a period of time, so between two and eight months, but also between mothers. Now, what a mother's breast milk composition is made up of is based on how many children they have, their age, what they've been eating recently, and even what they were eating a year ago, in fact. But it also depends on whether they're having a son or a daughter. And I asked Katie a little bit more about this. We found in in rhesus monkeys that mothers make more milk for daughters, but generally more fat and protein for sons, but more calcium for daughters. Now, the calcium one's a little bit easier to understand because daughters' skeletons develop at a faster rate than than do sons. And, And so it might be that this higher calcium is what's facilitating that. For some of the others, we just don't have enough data yet to really know. We're finding evidence that the biological recipe of milk is somewhat tailored to if you're rearing a son or a daughter. But why and what that means, we're just beginning to understand. How would the mothers know whether they've got a son or daughter and know how to produce the right milk? One of the things that we think is going on is that during fetal development, fetal hormone-specific or more hormones from daughters 
than sons that are going to influence mammary gland development, maybe crossing into the mother's bloodstream and, and affecting the mammary gland, which then is going to affect the milk she produces after the baby is born. But it can also be affected by the interactions between the mother and the offspring after birth. And so we know that, that both parts of this equation, depending on the animal you're looking at, they matter. These fetal effects and these behavioral effects. How the whole package comes together systematically, we're still studying. So I find it fascinating that there's this difference between sons and daughters. But Katie also says in the future that she thinks that milk banks, which we produce to babies that whose mothers maybe can't produce milk or those in hospital, might be in like blood banks in future where they have to specialise, find out what the baby needs and produce exactly the right kind of milk to give them the best help possible. What happens if you have twins, for example, if one's a male and one's a female baby? Yeah, people have been asking this and they don't actually know. Um, as Katie said, they're looking at monkeys at the moment. And actually, the incidence of twins and monkeys is so low that they haven't been able to get that data yet. But they're really interested in investigating it in humans in the future. Thanks, Kate. And Chris, I understand it is actually minus 10 degrees over there in Chicago now. Hello, Kat. Yes, minus 10 give or take. It's snowing. We don't know if we're going to be able to leave the country tomorrow, but luckily well, you're here to warm our day up for us. Well, I hope you get back, but what have you spotted in the news <laughs> for us this week? I do hope you it's get actually, back, honest. Thanks. Uh, well, it's been really interesting being here. We were here partly for the fact that it is the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting, but also we've been in the company of David Willits, who is the UK Minister for Universities and Science, there's something called the Science Innovation Network, SIN for short, although it's SIN it isn't, because what they do is to try to spot important science that's going on, important groups that are doing research, and therefore opportunities for British scientists to collaborate with people in other countries and try and bring the two together. And so David Willits was here to try to foster relations with a number of important research opportunities and initiatives that are taking place here in America. So we've actually been accompanying him on some of his ministerial visits, as well as uh, hearing about some of the news that's going on. And we've actually just published the speech that David Willits gave yesterday to the American Association's Fellows Forum yesterday morning. It was very interesting what he had to say about how he sees the special relationship between Britain and America and both the sort of spirit of collaboration and competition driving future developments and future technologies coming out from both of the countries. So that's worth a listen. The other thing I went to, there's a really interesting piece yesterday about brains and specifically how we can model brains with computers. There's a guy called Terry Stewart who's at Waterloo University in Canada and he and his team have come up with a way of generating neural networks, in other words connections between nerve cells, using a computer so that you can begin to work out how different parts of the brain work rather than have to try and study a real brain. You can build the network in the computer, you can then take the psychology, what the observation of how we think the brain should be responding to certain stimuli or what thought processes it should be producing, for example. And then you can ask the computer, does it genuinely result in those sorts of outputs when you put certain inputs in? And if it doesn't, you can then ask, what do we have to change in order to make it produce the right outputs? And then you can go looking in a real brain to see if those sorts of changes that you would have to put into your model can exist in nature if they're there, because that enables us to discover new science in a this computer. Sounds, this sounds really cool. I mean, could it be useful to scientists around the world? How could other scientists kind of get involved in modelling their interesting processes? Well, one of the things that Terry Stewart and his team have done is to come up with an open source computer language. They call this Nango, and you can download it 
and it means that you can take your psychology model, some particular task or thing that you're studying with how the brain works, you can assemble a neural network to model that behaviour, and you can then get involved asking, well, does my model of how I think the brain works fit with the observed psychology? And if it doesn't, you can then spot these differences and then go looking for them in the real brain to see if they exist. And then presumably bolt that onto the, the kind of growing virtual brain that these people are making. Yes, although there is some minor sort of wrinkle in this cortical computer, which is that, unfortunately, at the moment, if they were to scale up their model to be a complete human brain, which uses 20 watts of energy, they would need a power station to run it. It would be literally gigawatts of computing power, because our computers are just not good enough to match up with what the computer that's running in each of us's heads currently does. But... Some companies have come up with some new forms of computer chips, which, unlike normal computer chips, which are incredibly precise and devote probably 95% of their energy to being extremely accurate, these new chips will be highly inaccurate or imprecise, like nerve cells, and it means that they can actually model brains much more faithfully using this next generation of computer chips. Good stuff. Well, thanks very much, Chris and Kate, reporting there from Chicago, and we'll hear more from them later. So last week in Copenhagen Zoo, a young physically healthy giraffe called Marius was put down amidst an uproar from animal lovers. The zoo argued that it had been done to prevent inbreeding and produce a healthier population of giraffes in the long term. Here's your quick fire science on the subject with Ginny Smith and with Harriet Johnson. Inbreeding is when genetically closely related animals mate and bear offspring together. This increases the chance of harmful traits being passed down the generations and so reduces the overall health of a population. The European Association of Zoos and Aquaria runs a breeding programme for giraffes, which has been very successful. They supported the decision to put Marius down. Giraffes live in groups with one male and a number of females. Young males have to be removed when they reach sexual maturity to prevent fighting. Marius was genetically similar to others in the breeding programme, so it was decided that for the health of the population, it was best for him not to breed. Castration and contraception were decided not to be feasible alternatives, as both require sedation, which is dangerous for giraffes, as they often break their necks when they fall. Yorkshire Wildlife Park in the UK offered to take Marius, but because Marius's older brother lives there, Copenhagen Zoo decided the space would be better off given to a genetically different giraffe. There's been public outcry and controversy over Marius's fate. The case raises questions about whether zoos are ethical and how species conservation programmes should be managed. Meanwhile, at Longleat Safari Park in the UK, five lions recently had to be put down because of abnormal behaviour thought to be caused by inbreeding. In the wild, inbreeding can happen if a population becomes isolated, for example on an island. These populations are then very susceptible to disease. In humans, due to the desirability of royals marrying other royals, some dynasties became very inbred and suffered health problems because of it. Ginny Smith and Harriet Johnson. And you can get hold of all of our quickfire science episodes as our own podcasts on our website. And back to Chicago now, where it seems they've got more news than even snow at the moment. One of the papers announced at the conference earlier this week investigated the effect of crude oil in tuna fish embryos and specifically how it could impact on their hearts. Researchers hope that this work could explain how large oil spills such as the Deepwater Horizon disaster in 2010 impact on spawning sites. 
Chris Smith spoke to Barbara Block from Stanford University and Nathaniel Schultz from NOAA Fisheries. The point of the study was to identify mechanisms of crude oil toxicity in fish. Uh, No research spanning the past two decades has shown that the developing hearts of fish embryos and larvae are very susceptible to the toxic effects of different types of crude oils. And so the goal with the partnership with Stanford was to better understand and specifically identify what were the underlying causes of these heart-related effects in fish. So you made the observation in fish that you see these abnormalities, but you didn't know, Barbara, why they were happening. We knew that oil impacts the conduction pathways in the heart, but we didn't really know at the cellular level what was the mechanism. So how did you start this, Nat? Well, we came down and showed a lot of our data on whole embryos and showed what we call the injury phenotype, which are effects of oil on heart rate. Crude oil will slow down the heartbeat, and then at higher concentrations cause these arrhythmias. The beating of the heart goes wrong. The beating of the heart, exactly. And then shared those observations with the Stanford team, who are experts in cardiac physiology and heart muscle cell function. So you're presented with fish that have hearts that beat abnormally slowly or in a completely abnormal way in the presence of oil. How did you pursue that? These wonderful gentlemen called me up and asked, why would a heart slow down in the presence of crude oil? We'd been studying tuna hearts in relationship to climate. And when they asked me that question, I thought it must be impacting the same pathway that we're studying because it turns out temperature can actually slow down the heart. So we actually took their lead. We set up electrophysiological experiments to directly measure the ion flow in and out of a heart cell. We pith the tuna. We then remove the heart. We enzymatically isolate the heart cells. And then we bathe the cells in solutions that keep them happy and the heart cells will beat and pace normally. We then expose them to oil. We then use sophisticated electrophysiological techniques where we can actually measure the current, the electrical current flowing in and out of a heart cell. And it's that electrical current as a syncytium in a whole heart that gives you a heartbeat. We measure it, we put on the oil, and then if it blocks, we can define that block. What changed about the nature of the electrical activity in those heart cells when you put the oil on? Remarkably, when oil comes in contact with a living heart cell, it decreases the ability of the heart cell to beat, the switch of turning on and off is slowed down, and the contractility, the force with which a heart cell beats, is reduced. Why? Oil impacts critical ion channel pathways. It blocks the pore through which the ions are flowing and simply shuts down the pathway for these ions to bring about their normal physiological rhythms in a heart cell. So extrapolating those findings to the environment net, what do you think the implications are? Well, it's a a huge missing piece of the puzzle for us in the research that we've done for 20 years in essence, nailing down precisely the mechanism that explains why we're seeing the slowed heartbeats and uh, irregular heartbeats in the intact fish embryo. So understanding this mechanism for us is very important because it's a clear link now between individual heart muscle cells, the intact organ itself, and then uh, the health and survival of these embryos that we have been studying in response to crude oil. So if there's a lot of oil in the environment, it's going to impact on fish development and the likelihood of them reaching adulthood and therefore population. That's the idea, and uh, the implications of this work go well beyond oil spills. Uh, We do a lot of work on these same compounds that are also found in urban stormwater runoff and other environmental sources of uh, PAHs. So when these things are in the water, the rate at which they get into the body of a fish 
could therefore determine how likely it is to be affected. So when we have an oil spill, we very often spray detergents and things onto the oil to disperse it. Does that actually mean, paradoxically, we're driving more of these chemicals into marine species like fish? It's complicated. We've mostly been focusing on fish embryos. And the uptake for fish embryos is relatively simple because they take up these dissolved compounds directly across the eggshell. The uptake pathways are more complicated for older fish. And then, of course, in older fish, they have uh, protective machinery in the form of um, metabolism and metabolic capacity via the liver. Now, Barbara, if we extrapolate this out of the water and into the air, because, of course, the other place where you find these chemicals that are in crude oil, but equally they're in exhaust fumes of cars is people breathing in pollution, and we know there's an association between heart problems. When you have a bad air day, you also have a bad heart attack day. Do you think there could be a correlation between what you're finding in the fish and those observations on what happens to people? We think that smog and the presence of exhaust products that come from petroleum are carrying the same potential negative effects on cardiac function that we've measured in the crude oil impacts on bluefin tuna heart cells. Bluefin tuna are Olympians. They've got heart cells that function at the level of mammals. Doing it in a tuna, it was very easy to leap to a mammal and think about the human impacts of pollutants on our own cardiac physiology. Barbara Block from Stanford University and Nathaniel Schultz from NOAA Fisheries there speaking to Chris Smith. And they published that work this week in the journal Science. Kat, what's your top news tippets for this week? Well, we may think it's cold and miserable here in the UK and even colder over in Chicago where Chris and Kate are, but it's nothing compared to what polar bears have to put up with in the Arctic. Although their black and brown bear cousins hibernate for the winter and pregnant female polar bears hide out in dens during the coldest months, other polar bears don't. They just stick it out. How do they do that then? Because, I mean, I I believe it gets to a bone-chilling minus 50 degrees C in the Arctic. So So how do they survive that? So cold. I can't imagine how cold it is, actually. Pretty cold. Well, new research from scientists led by a team at the University at Buffalo in the US suggests that the answer lies in their genes, specifically genetic adaptations controlling the production of a chemical in the body called nitric oxide, which cells use to convert the nutrients in food into energy and heat. Now, comparing DNA from 23 polar bears, three brown bears and a black bear, the researchers discovered key differences between polar bears and their cousins in genes controlling nitric oxide production and the chemicals thought to help cells switch between generating energy from food to generating heat or storing energy as fat and this suggests that this is helping the polar bears adapt to life in the freezer. I wish I had that switch to help me cope with the cold. I'm not very good at it. Are there any other animals that have these clever genetic switches that help them survive in extreme conditions? Well, interestingly, I saw another related story this week from a team of Chinese, US and Canadian researchers who've been looking at Tibetan mastiffs, these these big old dogs that live up in the mountains at very high altitudes. They're very cute. Uh, But they were originally domesticated from native dogs living down on the Chinese plains. And led by researcher Dong Dong Wu, the scientists scanned through the genomes of 32 Tibetan mastiffs. They compared them to 20 native Chinese dogs and 14 grey wolves. And they found 16 key gene variations that were particular to the mastiffs. And around 12 of them were relevant to life at this high altitude. What about the Tibetan humans that are living up there? Do they have similar gene changes in order for them to survive at this high altitude? 
Well, most of the gene changes they found weren't like the polar bear ones involved in heat generation. They're more involved in the low oxygen conditions and responding to life in low oxygen. And they did actually find one gene called EPAS1 has also been implicated in adaptation to low oxygen in Tibetans themselves. So perhaps, although this does need to be proved, the dogs and their owners have co-evolved to cope with life up in the mountains. But more research needs to be done to be sure of that. Thank you very much, Kat. And next, we're joined by the science reporter, Mark Peplow, who's really excited about solving the world's energy crisis with nuclear fusion, I believe, Mark. That's right. This week has seen quite a key milestone in the quest to generate useful power out of nuclear fusion. That involves squishing together the nuclei of atoms. Now, the idea is that compared with fission, which is the process that runs our current nuclear power stations, for fusion, you potentially have a more abundant fuel and it releases more energy for less waste. So that's why scientists have been pursuing this dream of nuclear fusion for more than 50 years already. And this is a key milestone. It doesn't mean it's solved. But I thought that in order to make nuclear fusion happen, you've got to put a huge amount of energy in in order to get the atoms to slam together in the first place. You do, and that's exactly what they've done at the National Ignition Facility in Livermore in California. They have 192 high-powered lasers, all focused on the same point. And at that point, you have a tiny fuel pellet, just the size of a pea, that contains deuterium and tritium. These are heavy isotopes of hydrogen. And those are contained within a little gold container called a hole rhyme. Now, what happens when you switch on those lasers, they deliver a burst of energy, roughly equivalent to a couple of sticks of dynamite, that hits the gold container, and that in turn generates X-rays. Those X-rays compress the fuel pellet, uh, it implodes, it reaches millions of degrees C, and it crushes the nuclei inside until they fuse together. Now, that process converts some of their mass into energy, the old E equals MC squared. What's the ratio between the amount, because I imagine 192, I think you said, Mm. lasers kind of directing at this capsule, this really small pellet that must have required some energy to create in the first place. Mm. Like, what's the ratio between the energy in and the energy out from the fusion reaction? Well, that, of course, is the big question. The, The breakthrough that we've heard about this week is that for the very first time, you've got something called a fuel gain. You've got more energy out of the fusion reaction than you actually put in to the fuel. Now that that's an important caveat. Uh, they've got about 1.2 to 1.9 times more energy out than the x-rays that were produced put in. But this actually only amounts to about 1% of the original laser energy. So you're still quite a long way away from achieving true ignition where you're overall getting more energy out than you put in. Still, it's the first time ever that they've managed to get that sort of fuel gain. And do you think this finding could help us provide a way of us finding a carbon zero clean energy for the future, maybe? Well, it's an important step, but it is a very long road. I think ultimately we're more likely to see the first time that you get substantially more energy out of a fusion process than you put in. Still, from the world's biggest fusion project, which is called ITER, and that's based in Cadarache in France, with a budget of 15 billion euros. They're building it at the Mm. moment. Project managers hope it will start to generate power in 2028. In terms of commercially useful fusion power, you then need to add some decades onto the back of that again. Thanks very much, Mark. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories that we've been discussing, there are references and transcripts for those news items on our website, which is at nakedscientists.com slash news.
Now you're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Hannah Critchlow, and also with Kat Arney. On to the main topic now, brainy babies. So what makes for a child prodigy? Should you raise your baby to be bilingual? And are video games rotting or rejuvenating children's brains? In order to try to get to grips with these very important questions, first up, we're joined by Professor of Education and Neuroscience, Usha Goswami from Cambridge University. Hello, Usha. Hi there, Hannah. So over Christmas, I was visiting friends and in the space of about two weeks their 1.5 year old child Sophia went from saying the odd meaningful word in between her gibbering jabbering to speaking full sentences and it almost seemed as though she could understand exactly what I was saying. She was replying forming proper sentences. We were having a conversation and this progression seemed to happen literally within the two weeks. So how did that happen? What was going on in her brain? It was phenomenal to watch. Well, a lot of those experiences that she brought into play would have been happening ever since she was born because we know babies can already hear language while they're in the womb. They can hear the rhythms of their mother's speech, so that's the kind of syllabic patterning. And that's enough to recognise your mother's voice at birth. Neonates can distinguish their mother's voice from that of a stranger. And then as soon as they're sort of open for conversation with their mothers, there's very rapid learning by the brain, supported by things like motherese which is the exaggerated way we talk to babies you know we specially stress syllables and we have a sort of sing-song intonation pattern and the social side of learning language is very important as well the turn-taking and being online for language by having mutual gaze and looking into each other's eyes babies don't learn language from television or hearing the radio they really need that social interaction turn-taking patterns and all of that would have led your young child to be able to take turns with you and talk to you. Ah, okay. So you mentioned kind of um, melody a little bit. Are there particular kind of intonations or ways that you can speak to a child that will actually help foster their communication skills? Very much so, but we all do that automatically. Even children will do that when they're talking to babies. They speak in infant-directed speech, which is very rhythmic and song-like. So you wouldn't say to a baby, how are you today? You'd say something like, hi, baby, how are you today? And you're both exaggerating the prosodic melody but also hyperarticulating the vowels and doing a number of sort of clever things to the signal, the quality of the signal, that are actually facilitating learning for the baby. I mean, when I happen to watch kind of children's television programmes, they do have that particular tone, that intonation going on, which actually... I find a little bit grating as an adult. No, no, it's very important. (laughs) It's very important because actually when you put a radio mic on a baby and, and you can actually hear what all the language that baby hears in a given day or week or month, the amount that they hear spoken in motherese or infant-directed speech, that sing-song patterning mm-hmm. that you find irritating, that actually predicts vocabulary size at age two. Oh, so wow. it's a very important learning device. And why do you think it is so important? What's going on in the baby's brain? Is there something going on in their auditory cortex? So the kind Very of much so, yes. Yeah, so we think that language is encoded by the brain by networks of neurons that oscillate at different rates. So they're basically picking up different temporal changes in signal intensity and then aligning themselves with those changes. Because speech is such a rich and complex signal, you need multiple temporal rates. But a good example would be, you know, if you're listening to stress syllable patterns in language, so something like Peter, Piper, Picter, Pecker, Pickled Pepper. You've um, got these syllable beats syllables. coming in. Usha, can I bring in my nephew at this point who is doing that tongue twister? Peter, Piper, Picter, Pecker, Pickled Peppers. Very good. <laughs> but those patterns in the signal are being cued by these oscillations in the energy of the speech at different temporal rates. And that particular 
stress syllable rate, two hertz, seems to be something that children with dyslexia find very difficult to hear. Ah, okay. So I've got a slight dyslexia and I do find tongue twisters incredibly difficult. So mm-hmm. I have to concentrate really hard when I'm speaking for the radio, for example, because particular words can catch me out. So what's going on in my brain there? According to the research we're doing anyway in Cambridge, the dyslexic brain finds it harder to entrain or to align these oscillatory patterns at this stress syllable rate. So it means that metrical structure, which is captured by things like nursery rhymes and poems, is actually harder for those children to hear. And because the oscillatory rate at the metrical rate is sitting at the top of the oscillatory hierarchy, it's actually controlling how well other speech sounds are heard, like the put in pickled pepper. Thank you so much, Usha. And we'll be returning to Usha shortly. But first... We've heard how language should develop, but why do some children progress more quickly than others? Kate Lamble, reporting from Chicago's AAAS Science Conference, met Dr Anne Fernald from Stanford University to find out more about how a child's background could shape their language skills and their chances in later life. There are big differences among children in their readiness for school when at the age of five they show up. And you can predict with depressing accuracy from age three, which children are going to graduate from high school uh, and which are not. That's a big social problem for us. So it's, it's well known, it's obvious that children from lower SES backgrounds, by which we mean typically that the education of the parents is high school or, or less and the income is not very high, that their children, they are behind even at the starting gate of school and that these differences don't go away. There's a classic study that was published now 20 years ago by Hart and Risley. They studied 42 families in Kansas who didn't live in dire poverty, but they represented a range from professional families to working-class families to families on welfare. Their central finding, which is by the time the child is three years old, the child of the professional family has heard 30 million more words directed to him or her. 30 million more words, that's a lot. But language is so much more than vocabulary. There's grammar, there's sort of organisation, and so much more. So why is specific knowing words so important? It's really a proxy. In other words, it stands for many other valuable features of the kind of intensive, responsive, supportive interaction that some parents give regularly to their children. If one mother says dog and another mother says dog, 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 that's a 500% difference. That is not what we're talking about. One mother says dog and that's all. The other mother says, look, the doggy's got a big fluffy tail and that kitty cat's got a long skinny tail. In that silly little conversation, she is talking about something that's completely obvious to an adult, but the child doesn't know how to represent that in language and is learning through those silly little conversations. The mother who speaks more doesn't just repeat the same word. She connects those words. And you're building up then a network of meanings in this little brain. You're building intelligence. That's how intelligence works. We know that language has a genetic component and there's a lot of argument that certain aspects of language are innate. So how do we know that this aspect of modelling is not built upon genetic differences within families? Right. No, of course there are genetic differences in verbal aptitude to some extent. But let's take an an example that's much more clearly genetic and that's how tall you are. I mean, in, in my family we have the potential for very large feet and I've achieved that potential. But if I had not been well-nourished as a child, if I had not gotten enough protein, then I would not be as tall and my feet would be as big. 
Genetics specify a potential. They do not specify what we call a phenotype, a person in the world. And that potential needs to be nurtured. Why would there be this difference between people of high economic backgrounds, high education backgrounds, who talk more to their children and those of of lower socioeconomic status? Are people aware that they're talking less to their children? There are lots of reasons in different cultures why mothers talk less to babies. In some cases, they simply don't know that it's important. Another answer that we get is, I don't know what to say to a child. And there I think you really have to help these mothers build skills. I could say to you, you know, music education is wonderful for children. It builds the brain. Here's a violin. Goodbye. And you wouldn't know what to do with it. Handing a book to a mother who never herself experienced books, who may not be literate herself, it's an artifact that can be very powerfully used with children. But you have to help her learn what to do with this new tool. Another reason that we often hear is, well, I just don't have time. And here I have the, the following answer. When you bring a child into the world, I think everybody agrees that you're committing to certain fundamental caregiving obligations, like to feed that child, to keep the child clean. Then you'd never say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just too busy to give food to my child today. I think we know enough now about the science showing that Engaging at a supportive and proactive level with a baby from infancy on is as vital a part of caregiving because it's contributing to optimal brain development. These children who are being spoken to less, the mothers are more quiet, maybe they don't know what to do and so forth, why aren't they picking up things from TV, the radio, and just hearing people talk around them? Yeah, well, in one of our studies, uh, we recorded children for 10 hours across a whole day and listened to these recordings to find out how much of that speech was directed to the child and how much of it was right nearby. So it was certainly heard by the child, but was not relevant to the child. And we asked, which of these kinds of speech predicts vocabulary development? And the answer is, at least in the first two years, it's speech to the child. And the other stuff that's also being heard by the child isn't being processed in the same way. So that has no correlation with these language outcomes. You can imagine that a lot of parents speaking to their children, it's habit, it's what you get into. Can mothers learn to do this? Now, you're right. It's not easy to do. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to change behavior at this level, but I'm optimistic that, uh, that it can happen, and it has to happen in the family because that's, it's those first five years where so much potential is lost. Those children are a year or two behind by the age of five, and it's hard to catch up from that. That's Dr Anne Fernald from Stanford University speaking to Kate Lamble at the AAAS science meeting. So, Usha, welcome back again. Bearing in mind what we've heard from Anne is that developing early language skills appears to be key for success later in life. Here in the UK, many Sure Start centres, which offered early learning and childcare, including drop-in play sessions and communication sessions, they've had their services under threat or closed with a recent spat of government cuts. So, Usha, do you feel that decreased intervention may impact early stages of language and reading development for the next generation? I think it's very unfortunate if these programmes are closing because, as we heard Anne saying, it's it's not just about families, actually. It's about the early learning environments. It doesn't have to be in the family. It could be in the nursery or it could be in the Sure Start Centre. But it's the richness of language that these young children experience that's so important for later development. So we know from other American studies that there's a lot of empty language in low SES homes. So mothers saying things like, leave that alone, don't do that, mm-hmm. stop but not using nouns and verbs in any rich context. 
In contrast, if you are doing pretend play games with your child or engaging around storybooks, the language is much richer, there's more syntax, there's more new novel nouns being used. And all of those kind of skills aren't necessarily natural. But if you're in an environment like a Sure Start Centre where you can be shown how to use books or how to use pretend play to the optimal advantage for your child, then that would be very unfortunate if that was being lost. So what would you be advising the UK government (laughs) Well, I think we know enough about the importance of language and the importance of nursery rhymes and language play in games and using storybooks and having these conversations with children that any medium that we can use, any intervention that can support that in all families is really crucially important for the next generation. Thank you very much. That's Professor Usha Goswami, who is Professor of Neuroscience and Education at Cambridge University. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Katani and with me, Hannah Critchlow. Don't forget, later we'll be answering your questions. To get in touch with us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or email hannah at thenakedscientist.com. Next, though, when we want our children to learn, we might give them books, take them on trips or even just help them to do their homework. But what about getting them to play an action-packed shooting video game? Hmm. Well, it might not be the first thing to spring to mind, but Daphne Bavillier from the University of Rochester believes that these specific types of games can help attention, multitasking and even eyesight. Kate Lamble met up with her at the AAAS conference in Chicago. I am indeed very interested in how we can force the brain to be more plastic, to change so that we can develop new skills, gain new knowledge. And it's totally by surprise that we discovered that some types of video games seem to have such an effect. The video games we're talking about are probably not the video game you really think of as being mind-enhancing. They are the very fast-paced, action-packed shooter games where the name of the game is really to go after the bad guy, the zombies, and get to them before they get to you. But surprisingly, over the last 10 years, there's a number of groups that have shown that these games can have profound effects on how the brain is wired and help rewire and correct, for example, deficits like vision, enhance our attention, enhance our ability to do mental rotation, to give a few examples. Why would video games be good for us in terms of eyesight and attention? Is it because these particular action games, they've got quite an immersive world, you're in a 3D world that you're having to navigate. Why would those have an effect specifically? One of the key is to provide the player with enough variability that the game world can't be learned, but is reliable enough that you can make prediction. So mini games are fun at the beginning and they probably have some effect very early on, but they are too simple. Your brain really learns them by heart. And once your brain automatizes a skill, it's not very useful. It doesn't transfer anymore. I can give you an example from people that play Tetris, the best Tetris players in the world. They're not very good at mental rotation in general. They're excellent at rotating Tetris-like shapes. But at this point, it's not very useful when you're trying to read your GPS and align your GPS with your heading direction when you're driving. So the key is to have a complex enough world where you can make predictions, have those predictions being pushed by pacing, And there's a whole list. We have about 20 different key components that we're actually testing now that are parts of those games. And when they come together is really where you get something which is bigger than the sum of the parts. When you look at gaming, my brother, who's a big action gamer, unlike me, I play puzzle-type games, he loves it. Would it have the same effect if I started playing action games, even though I don't necessarily enjoy them like he does? 
So to actually establish the effect of action game in the lab, what we do is two steps. First, we check whether there is an effect by taking people that report playing those games and contrasting them with people that report not playing those games. But because we're really interested in using those games either for educational purposes or for rehabilitation of patients, then we do training study where we take people like you who don't like playing games and who don't like playing those games, and we force you to play those games. So we take a group of subjects and we force them to play entertainment, commercially available games. But one set of games are actually action-packed, fast-paced shooter game, and the other set are control games, also from the entertainment industry. So all of these games are actually quite engaging. People are ready to play for them. They dream about it. But what we see, it's not really the engagement which is important. It's really the game structure, the game mechanics itself that matters. And when we force people that don't want to play those games to play those games, they show the same benefits. So it's not that you want to play them, it's that you do play them. So even even though I might not enjoy it, it's still good for me. When you're looking at using these games for educational purposes, obviously action games like this, there's a whole entertainment industry and investment behind it. Without having that investment and that drive to create a successful monetizing game, is it possible to make an educational game that would have the same effect? The issue of knowing how to align very good creative game design within the space of action games, which is actually write a costly game media with research and how to fund research is a key one, and it's not entirely solved. But what we see is that there are a few challenges to be addressed, and we're addressing them now actually by developing an action-packed, fast-paced video games adapted to children, which is age-appropriate. As you probably know, all of the commercially available action video games contain violence. But the game mechanics themselves don't have to be violent. You can actually develop games that are age-appropriate with the same game mechanics, just as never been done. Video games can cause addiction. We do see technology addiction in young children. Is there a certain balance between the positive effects they can have on us and moving into an addictive effect? There are negative aspects of video games. And even within the positive, if you look at the study we do, the training study we do is about half an hour to an hour a day. So this is like five hours per week. Like if children were playing only five hours per week, a lot of parents would be happy. So even the beneficial aspects are no excuse for binging. But as researchers, we're very interested in what are the devices in the game mechanics that lead to negative impact and inform the industry and work with the industry on how these can be actually tailored to be responsibly used. So, for example, you can have games where there are night and day cycles, and that means you need to pause. So there are many devices that can be considered to actually help and get responsible use and design of those games. That's Kate Lamble talking to Daphne Bavillier from the University of Rochester. Now, we've just heard how video games might affect our brains, but could computers ever have the power to predict our emotions and even change them? What about reading our minds? I'm joined now by Professor Peter Robinson, who's a computer scientist at Cambridge University. Hi, Peter. Hello, Kat. Your work just sounds absolutely fascinating. I've been browsing through your website. So tell me a bit about how do you get a computer to start interpreting something as complex as a a human emotion or mood? Well, we look at the way that uh, people do it. So when people talk to each other, they look at the other person's face, they listen to their tone of voice, they watch their body posture and gesture... 
and they make inferences about what the other person's thinking and, with luck, change what they're doing accordingly. Now, of course, actually, we have a problem here. We're, we're on the radio, so I can't see the people I'm talking to. And actually, people maybe don't know you're in a different studio from me, so I can't even see your face to know how you're reacting to what I'm, I'm seeing. This makes it very difficult. And uh, this, this process of trying to understand what the other person's thinking, it, it's what psychologists call mind reading, it doesn't mean telling you what you ate for breakfast. It means just understanding whether you're interested or bored, confused or understanding. And uh, computers don't do this. Uh, and some people don't do it. People who don't do it are at a disadvantage. It's people with autism spectrum conditions. And computers are, in a sense, autistic. And we can do something about that by using exactly the same technologies. Point a webcam at someone's face, listen to the tone of their voice, watch their body posture and gesture and make inferences about what they're thinking. So you can basically train computers to spot these signs of different human emotions. That's right. It uses techniques that we call machine learning. So we have large amounts of data that have been prepared, images of people's faces, recordings of their voices or whatever, that have been very carefully labelled for what emotions or mental states are being depicted. And then we can, using computer systems, using a bit of statistical theory, probability theory, work out what the key factors are and then when we're presented with some new information, we can actually make inferences about what that person might be thinking. Now, this does sound kind of cool, but are there real-life situations where this could be useful? I'm thinking back to the old Microsoft Office paperclip where it kind of pops up and goes, it looks like you're writing a letter. I don't want a computer to go, you look like you're having a bad day. Yeah, yeah that's right. Well, that's an incredibly clever piece of software. The inferences it was making about what you were doing, really clever. It's timing not so good. It was, if you like, autistic. It wasn't detecting the context of whether you wanted that interruption or not. So the example that we've used, and you perhaps watched the emotional computer video on YouTube that shows this, is a satellite navigation system in a car. If you're driving in an unfamiliar city centre, busy traffic, you're lost, the last thing you want is some voice springing up and telling you to make a U-turn. It's going to cause an accident. A more intelligent well, approach would be <laughs> well, a more intelligent satellite navigation system might see that you are confused and concentrating and realize that actually should be relieving you of cognitive burdens, so certainly make sure your mobile phone doesn 't ring, maybe turn off the radio, sorry, but it is a distraction, and maybe even let you drive in the wrong direction for a bit until you recover your composure, and then when you 're ready, steer you back in towards where you ought to be going. So it would spot when I'm having a really bad time and maybe I've pulled over to the side of the road and it wouldn't say, turn left, shut up. That's right. It could be a bit more peaceful. And, and of course, there are any number of applications in, in everyday computing, things like uh, online teaching systems that could see whether you were enjoying the lesson or you were confused or whatever. Online shopping systems that could notice how your face registered different products that you were looking at and then show you more appropriate ones as next possible choices. Again, this sounds cool, but it's slightly concerning. I'm not sure if I want my phone to know whether I'm feeling peckish or have had a bad day and it shows me chocolate to buy. There's kind of ethical and, and privacy concerns here, aren't there? There certainly are. I have to say also the technology isn't that good yet, so I'm not sure that you really need to worry too much. But actually there are things that we can monitor through mobile phones that are really quite important. M major health issues we can detect for people with depression, and that's what, 10% of the population, we can monitor the phase of their depression from things like the way in which they're walking. And that can be picked up from the accelerometers in a mobile phone. So actually, this could be really quite a useful tool for health.
One of the other things that you mentioned earlier was about people who have problems with understanding other people's emotions, uh, things like autism and Asperger's. Tell me about some of the work that you're doing to try and help these kinds of people. Well, it brings us back to the, um, the intelligent games that we were hearing about from Chicago. We've been working, uh, well, I've been working with Simon Baron Cohen in the Autism Research Centre of Cambridge and half a dozen research groups around Europe to put together an intelligent game for children with autism spectrum conditions that will teach them about emotions. So it's an adventure game. They like that. It's engaging. And we then have systems like face monitoring, like voice monitoring, like body posture monitoring that we can use to teach them about emotions and tell them how well they're emulating themselves. You learn a lot by imitating. So they maybe see a happy face and it go, this is happy, look happy, and then it would tell them if they were looking happy as well. Yes, it's a little less patronising than that, but that's sort of the general <laughs> idea, yeah. Games like um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You have a picture up with four possible interpretations and they've got to uh, say which interpretation is the best one and they can get help as they go. Good luck with it and we look forward to hearing more about it in the future. That's Peter Robinson, Professor of Computing at Cambridge University. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Kat Arney and with me, Hannah Critchlow. Time now to take a look at some of your questions which have been coming in throughout this show. And to help us answer them, we're joined by Peter Robinson and Usha Goswami. Hello. Hello. So, kicking off, Eric Sandberg has been in touch saying, is there any truth to the claim that simply listening to music will somehow stimulate his brain? So, for example, listening to Mozart, either when he's working or when he was in the womb, for example, (laughs) will that make for a brainier baby or for a brainier work that he's producing? I think it might be very soothing for him to listen to Mozart while he's working, but you'd only grow new neuronal connections when you're learning something new. So for the baby who first hears the Mozart symphony, that first occasion of learning, there would be definite neuronal change. But then once the piece is familiar, then the baby's brain will stop attending to it in the same way. So it won't necessarily be growing new connections, but it may still have a soothing impact through its familiarity, for example. Do you think that there's a difference between playing Mozart to the baby in the womb and, for example, playing, I don't know, heavy metal? (laughs) Well, I mean, you could certainly think intuitively there might be a difference. I think you'd actually have to look at which neural rhythms were being fostered by the different kinds of music. So back to our earlier conversation about oscillations but that's again how music is encoded by the brain entrainment of these different temporal rates of oscillation some of which are very beautifully patterned for example in a piece of Mozart music but these different temporal rates are often made to jar or clash with each other in other types of music Mm -hmm. and that's why we might find it less pleasurable to listen to for example. So would you play Mozart to your baby in the womb? It wouldn't do any harm. You know, certainly we've seen that babies will learn the theme tune of Neighbours. If their mother watched Neighbours all the time while she was pregnant, the babies come out and they recognise that piece of music. Is that true? It's true. Oh, wow. Work work by Peter Hepper. Okay, and next question now, moving on. Matthias Tuller has been in touch saying, does multilingual upbringing make for more intelligent kids? In general, it does convey a number of advantages. So it seems that even though certain milestones of language might seem slower if a child's acquiring two or three languages, by the time that child is at school or is 8, 9, 10, there are some advantages and they seem to be particularly in what we call the executive functions, which are things like being able to do two things at once or being able to monitor two sources of information, that kind of thing. So it seems that by learning more than one linguistic code at a time, the brain gets better at these multitask 
types of ability. So they might have delayed language acquisition in the first place, but then they will have improvements in their language. Yes, I mean, basically their brain's learning more, Mm -hmm. so it takes longer. Thank you, Usha. And also Christopher has been in touch, not Chris Smith, but another Christopher with no surname here. He wants to know, Peter, I think this is a question for you. How do you become a scientist? And he says, by the way, I'm only 13 years old and I'm very interested in robotics. What a great question. Well, I... um I was younger than that when I wanted to become actually an inventor rather than a scientist. I read a book when I was about three, four, five. Well, it's probably being read to me, to be honest, about a man who was inventing a machine to count chickens before they were hatched. And I thought that was really cool. So I wanted to be an inventor. And I guess I am now. Read lots. Storybooks, encyclopedias, biographies, science fiction. Work at your maths. Maths is the language of science. You're going to have to know your maths. And then... Find out what excites you. I mean, science is a really broad field. Really useful. Come to the Cambridge Science Festival, 10th to 23rd of March. Have a look at what's on. And you might be able to meet uh, Peter there, Christopher, if you do fancy swapping along. And obviously, also listen to the Naked Scientist podcast as well. (laughs) That's a good thing. Absolutely. And a plug for Hannah's Naked Neuroscience and my Naked Genetics podcast as well. (laughs) Anyway, closing the show earlier this week, Hannah directed her attention to our question of the week. This week, we ponder our pause. Ken Silver wrote in with a three-part question, starting with this. Why are people either right-handed or left-handed? What possible benefit does that have over being ambidextrous? Over to Professor of Psychology Chris McManus from University College London. Well, even if the right and the left hand are equally proficient as each other, as Adam Smith once said, it always pays to specialise. So if you practise half the time with the right hand and half the time with the left you've actually practised only half as long with the right hand as someone who only practises with their right hand, and therefore they become twice as good. And if they're twice as good at finding food or killing opponents, it's obvious who goes to the wall first, so it pays to specialise there. In actual fact, the hands aren't equal, and the right hand in right hand is actually faster and better, particularly for tiny little movements at the ends of the limbs, particularly in the fingers and the toes, and so people tend to use the better hand, and it gets better still with more practice. Thanks, Chris. And next part of your question, Ken. I find I'm right-handed, right-footed and even right-eyed. When I wore a single muff headset on my job, though, I preferred it on my left ear and not my right. So that's a bit of a question. So the simple answer here is you're left-eared. And in fact, although 90% of people are right-handed, only 80% are right-footed, 70% are right-eyed and about 60% are right-eared. So that leaves a lot of funny combinations around and you're one of them. Oh, and do animals also display handedness? Many animals do show a preference for one side or the other, but for instance in mice, 50% prefer to use their right paw and 50% prefer to use their left. So they have individual handedness or pawedness, but not group handedness or pawedness. Some animals do show group preferences, though, but it's very rare to find anything as extreme as the human situation where we have 90% one way round and 10% the other way round. But those group asymmetries do exist, and that means animal brains must be asymmetric as well in some way. Thanks, Ken, for getting in touch, and Chris for the answers. Sticking with the brain, we next zoom in to examine this. Hello, my name's John, and I'm calling from Belfast. I'd like to know why MRI imaging is so low quality. Why are the images so blurry? And how long will it be before we can get accurate, sharp imaging of the brain and the tissues inside the head for correct diagnosis of diseases? Thanks. 
So why are MRI images so blurry and could psychiatry be better at diagnosing disorders of the brain if there were better imaging techniques available? And if you know why, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can Facebook us at Naked Scientists or get in touch with us with Twitter. We're at Naked Scientists. And if that's got you thinking of many more questions about handedness, then also get in touch as we're having a special programme dedicated to left-right asymmetry in April. Closing this week's show, though, we asked earlier how quickly do brain cells form in babies? And the answer is... Bum, bum, bum. A quarter of a million brain cells are formed every minute. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. I'm Hannah Critchlow and thank you for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.